When word came to Sambalat, Tabar, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and left a gap left in it, though at that time I had not yet set the doors in the gate, Sambalat sent me his messenger. Come. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Omer. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me this message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then a fifth time, Sambalat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it's reported among the nations and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So, come, let's meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were trying to frighten us, thinking... Their hands will get too weak for the work, and then it won't be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel. He was shut in his house. He said, let's meet in the house of God, inside the temple. And let's close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah 
and Sambalat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And they would, then would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sabalat, my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Nadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this. All the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. This is the word of the Lord. Great, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your presence in each of our lives. I thank you as we stand here or sit here today that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know everything about us. You know how we're leading in life. You know who we're leading in life. And you know who we want. You want us to lead in life. Lord, more than anything this morning, as well as all the bigger picture things, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hands, each one of us. Empower us, each one of us, to lead our own lives well. In Jesus' name, amen. If I didn't say good morning uh, last time I was up here, so I apologize. Good morning to you. It's great to see you uh, here this morning. Uh, we continue to look at the life of Nehemiah uh, in the book of Nehemiah, which uh, if you keep in front of you, we'll get to in a minute. To remind you, if you haven't been following, it's a book that was written about uh, mostly 2,500 years ago. It mostly includes the memoirs of this man, Nehemiah, he was um, cupbearer originally to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And what he did is he received news while he was cupbearer to the king that his city and his people were in ruins. And as a consequence of praying, as a consequence of spending time with God, he was broken and he was mourning and crying out to God. The state of his people and the state of his city. And out of that place of mourning, of crying out to God and of prayer, he then began to put into place a plan and then began to put that into practice of seeing the walls rebuilt and the people restored too. It's a story of extraordinary restoration from a situation that looks desperate to something that looks full of hope and full of joy. 
There are massive challenges. I know it's a very challenging book. I've chatted to a number of you who are finding it very challenging because actually one of the things it speaks to us is that we've got to face up to the challenges in our lives rather than pretend they're not there. But actually, we don't do that in our own power, in our own strength. We do it with a God who is with us and cares for us and enables us in all that we call to him. Nehemiah, as we looked in the last couple of weeks, faced challenges from outside. He then faced challenges from within his own community. And this morning, we reach Nehemiah 6 that was so beautifully read to us. In many ways, looking at some of the challenges Nehemiah personally faced in leadership. I was chatting uh, yesterday, when we did, only for a short period of time. I didn't do a lot of gardening yesterday, I have to confess, up front. I don't want to be a fraud. Keith and many others did lots of gardening. I floated around and chatted to a few people, to be honest, and flicked a rake around. But I did a little bit, uh, a, a tiny bit of work that would count. One of the conversations I had was with somebody there was, um, do you know, each of us only have 24 hours in a day. Each of us only have some of the people in our lives that we think of who were great leaders only had the same amount of time in the day as we do. So what are we doing with it? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our energy and how do we put it? So what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to take 30 seconds and in your own mind, I would like you to think of one person who comes to mind in your life that you look up to as a great leader. Think of one person who's a great leader in your mind. I'd like you to then think, why do you think? Like in your own mind, think of why is it that you think they were a great leader? What were the qualities they had? I'd like you to chat to the person next to you to explain who that was and uh, someone near to you, find someone near to you um, and to, to explain who is it you picked and why have the opportunity to share with somebody. If you're not near someone directly, do find somebody to have a conversation with and then we will chat in a minute.
Nothing. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to try and find a little bit of wisdom in this room this morning. There's more wisdom in this room than there probably is at the front here. Um, actually, just to give you a, a quick snapshot of in our trio, uh, we had, and you can probably guess between uh, Nicola, myself, and uh, Peter, we had the chief exec of a bank, we had Martin Johnson, the rugby captain, and we had John Stott, the Christian leader, as kind of three different people. So there's, there's no right or wrong answer here. Just let's share a few people and, and say briefly why. If you want to put your hands up to share, just to anybody that's interested. If you don't have courage, you can always share the person next to you. Um. Women's met her or not? Yeah. Nicola Neal. Nicola Neal. I met her at my old church before I came back here. And for some reason, I didn't know, but I got really lifted up from her last year at New Wine. Great. And I've got a book, Praise God, at the moment, if Great. anyone else wants to read it. Great. Nicola Neal, Christian leader, locally, inspired you, inspired your life. That's great. Yep. Unfortunately, I had a real trouble, actually, but then, then Billy Graham okay. came to mind, and he had a single focus. Single focus. focus. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. yeah. Other people? I'll come round. I don't know where I can pronounce his name correctly. Um, Jack Hibbs and Amir Tassav. To Safari. Well, why, why a great leader for you? For good teaching. Good teaching. Great. Okay. Others? Rosie, I'll come with mine. Um, mine would be a student who called Phil Cotton, who was many years like, ahead of me. And he did medicine through the back door, but he also worked, this was in St Andrews, in a cafe called Brambles. And he always had like open door with a student house that he lived in to everyone. And it just really impacted the students. Um, he went on to Manchester and Glasgow. And along the way, he trained as a, a Methodist minister, but he's out in Rwanda. And I think it was a sense of fun. I love when he got stuck in a lift in one of our halls of residence on a prank of, of that. But also I see him sharing his faith, but just, the humility of serving, and he was told at school, couldn't be a doctor, um, but you can only be a road sweeper. And when I see a road sweeper, I think of Phil, because that's the kind of guy. Great. Yeah. Someone that really impacted your life. Anybody else? Um, I sort of, um, Billy Graham too, because he just brought the Bible alive for me. So. Okay, great. Uh, Joyce Meyer for her teaching and for her encouragement, someone who's been through a lot of things in life, but for whom God is absolutely always absolutely central and very uplifting teaching. Okay. I, I thought of um, Nelson Mandela um, because he held to his beliefs for decades and decades, and eventually he embraced his opponents and he changed the world. And if that wasn't a God sent, um, happening. I don't know what was. Okay. A few others? Anybody else? Uh, do you want to go back? I'll go forward. 
Well, originally I thought of Paul Harcourt because of the way that he leads so humbly. But actually, for me, someone that strikes me is an artist called Aiwawi, who has the incredible ability to give a voice to the voiceless. And he's an artist, isn't he? A Chinese artist? Chinese artist, yeah. Um, I said Daniel, my husband, because um, the incredible sacrifice he does daily in the name of his family. Great, thank you. Oh, Joyce, yeah, sorry, Joyce, I didn't see your hand there. Um, I was thinking of Catherine Marshall. The, uh, she, all her books were so beautifully written. And uh, the main thing I saw from her, how Jesus was real. Mm, great. Stephen, yeah. This is terribly uh, conventional in establishment, but I thought of Justin Welby, um, because I think he's a truly humble man. Uh, he's worked outside the church and in the world before going into the church, and he's not been swayed by conformity since taking office. He's held to his belief. One last one. Maybe two. Two last one, then I need to get on and say something, otherwise we're going to be here a long time. Churchill, but I don't need to say any more. Okay, great. I wanted Churchill so much, someone to say Churchill this morning. So thank you. I think we've had lots of um, famous people, well, famous perhaps in the eyes of the world, but they're very ordinary people too. And I just think of my dad, and he was involved in church planting in the 50s, and um, it was humility. He was such a humble man, but he was a leader. Great. Um, do continue the conversation afterwards, otherwise we're going to get back to Nehemiah. We could be here a while. Uh, so, okay. One of the things, um, actually, can we put up a few? I was just thinking, if you look in this leadership theory, there's so much written about it, but I just want to give you a few thoughts this morning to help you. Uh, for those who are struggling with, only one man in a thousand is a leader of men. The other 999 follow women. Any, any thoughts this morning? Okay, let's keep on. People who enjoy meetings should not be in charge of anything. I spent a life in meetings in the public sector, and so I'm not sure what I think about that. Okay. Success in almost any field depends more on energy and drive than it does on intelligence. This explains why we have so many stupid leaders. <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt, the best executive is the one who has sense enough to pick good men to do what he wants done and self-restraint enough to keep them from meddling with them while they do it. Douglas Adams, it's a well-known fact that those people who must want to rule people are ipso facto those least suited to do it. Anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. A little bit of politics this morning? Okay. A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. That's by a leadership consultant. Alexander the Great, leadership. 
I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. Our relationship with leaders is always really interesting. It says a lot about us, and it also says a lot about them. Whether we consider a lead, ourselves a leader in life is also interesting. Whether you'd say that of yourself, or you'd really like to run away from that title for yourself. Are you a leader this morning? Do you lead a family? Do you lead a home? Do you lead a group at work? Do you lead a ministry in the church? Do you lead a group outside church that's interested in some part of nature or some sports group or some interest group? And if you are, what kind of leader are you? And how do you lead is the question. Many of us will realize that we often put our leaders on a pedestal. Many times they can have a big target on their back. All through history, uh, some leaders have taken extraordinary glory through some of the amazing things that have been done in and through them. But also many have taken criticism and conspiracy and difficulty at the same time. Most people have a strong opinion about a leader. It's pretty difficult to go somewhere without actually getting it. So, for example, I wonder what your opinion is this morning of Theresa May of Jeremy Corbyn, of Eddie Jones, England rugby coach, of Steve Jobs, who led Apple for many years, or in the, in the press very often, Elon Musk, who very famously in the last week said if he, in his business, he said, if you're in a business meeting that's no use, just walk out. There are all sorts of different people who lead in different ways in different parts of society. They know what it is to be affirmed and know what it is to be loved when things are going well. But they also know what it's like when things go badly wrong, when criticism comes, when failure happens, and actually you're having to take the rap for it. No one faces, goes far on the leadership journey without having to deal with attack, with difficulty, and with hardship. In all that challenge, those who are leaders and those who have led different things will know that actually to lead means to stay resilient as well and resolved to make it to the end of the race that is set before us. In Nehemiah 6, which I, if you have in front of you, you'll see that Nehemiah had been a very effective shepherd of his people and leader for the people of Israel. The wall um, was getting finished. There was no gap in it now in verse we see in verse 1 of our passage in front of us. Only the doors of the gates needed to be set in place. Nehemiah was so close, so close to getting to the finishing line of what God had set him and what he had spent his life making happen. Are facing all those battles, all the weariness, the exhaustion, the heat, the, the kind of challenges he faced, right, he's right at the edge, at the end of this challenge. And I'm sure he's starting to think, I'm just about there. But one of the things that those who've been Christians a number of years will particularly resonate with is that when you're nearly there, actually remember that if you have a vision for your life, if God has placed something on your heart, that actually there will become a point where you know the devil would still like you to get distracted, to get away from the task, to go in a different direction. 
See in verse 1 that Nehemiah received an invitation from his enemies, from Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, and they sought to distract Nehemiah from the project God had called him to complete. The offer made, the made towards him seems very tempting. Come and meet us in the plains of the Ono. I mean, what could go wrong with a meeting just with these people? What on earth is wrong with the plains of the Ono? Maybe it'll lead to peace talks. Maybe it's a little bit like North Korea and South Korea. You know, maybe that's the opportunity ahead of him to actually make peace with his enemies. But also, as many of you will know, if you've had periods of your life when you've been really exhausted going after things, you think, well, you know, maybe it'll be a bit of a break from the routine of doing what I'm doing. Maybe a trip to the Plains of the Ono would be great for me. Unfortunately, those who issued the invitation had sinister intentions. They were scheming to harm it, it says in verse 2. And the consequences to both the project of rebuilding the walls and also to Nehemiah himself would be incredibly severe. I wonder this morning, what are the things that distract you from what you're called to do, what you're called to be? What are the main distractions in your life? that take away your energy and take away your focus from what you're really here to do and to be, pulling away from what matters most in your life. So, for example, if you have a vision of your life, whether it's a work life or a home life or whatever it is, that's something you know is God-given and would be fruitful and joyful, we need to be on guard for things that will distract us from that task. Throughout Scripture, we see that the enemy, Satan, seeks to distract us from the good plans God wants for our lives. I wonder what those distractions are for you. It may be a hobby that consumes you. It may be that you work too much or you're obsessed with certain things on TV or with fitness or whatever else it is. And actually, we end up filling our time and wondering where our time has gone because we're so easily distracted. So what can we do to avoid this kind of distraction? How do you resist the temptation when it comes your way? Nehemiah's response in verse 3 is very simple. He said, I'm involved in a great project. So he declined the meeting. Nehemiah knew what God had called him to. He knew his focus and his purpose. And he wasn't going to be drawn away from what God had called him to do. Now, here, obviously, is a great example for us. Will we keep our eyes and our heart fixed on what God has laid on our hearts? Or will we get drawn down cul-de-sacs and dead ends that go nowhere by other people? I am somebody who is naturally quite easy to distract. I'm someone who has an interest in lots of different things. That interest then may fail after a while, but I am naturally quite easy person to distract. And I wonder what those temptations are for you. People would often say today, if you read some of the social commentators who talk about our society today in this digital age, they'd say one of the great challenges is we're constantly overstimulated and constantly overdistracted by all the noises and the messages that we get all the time. That's not even Christian commentators, that's secular commentators. What are your TV habits? How much time do you spend on the internet? 
How much time do you spend consumed by Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? How much time do you think get consumed by whether things are bad outside or that your body's failing? There are all sorts of bits of life that can distract us continually. Interruptions, distractions, they jeopardize what we're called to. And Nehemiah isn't lured away. Even four times it says in verse 4, four times Nehemiah is sent the same message. Nehemiah remains single-minded. He's not distracted. And this probably saves his life. So this morning, what's the challenge in your life that you're constantly distracted by? What keeps getting in the way of what you know you ought to be doing and what you end up not doing? What's preventing you fulfilling your God-given gifts and your God-given purpose? And how are you going to find that strength this morning to live that way? Secondly, Nehemiah faces accusations to, the t- uh, to his leadership as they seek to undermine him. They seek to undermine his character and his reputation. We see it in verses 5, 6, and 7. It's a conspiracy of false accusations, rumors, slanders, and flat-out lies. They wrote a letter filled with deceitful and volatile information and began to circulate that letter to others to gather momentum against Nehemiah. And obviously, if the people read this and believed it, if King Artaxerxes believed it, and the lies were spread, it would bring an end to the building project, the end of his role as leader in Jerusalem. Actually, it was quite serious if the accusations were true. And there were three main things that they accused Nehemiah of. That Nehemiah was rebuilding Jerusalem to rebel against Artaxerxes, that actually he was on a big power grab. That Nehemiah planned to become king of Israel. And that Nehemiah convinced the prophets to sway public opinion so he'd become monarch of the land. Nehemiah's enemies were seeking to crush Nehemiah and to bring the project of rebuilding the walls and of seeing the people rebuilt brought low. And they were doing it through slander, through gossip, through lies and deceit and hoping that this would discourage Nehemiah and the people. As John writes in John's Gospel, the devil is the father of lies. Nehemiah responds in verse 8, putting the truth against the lies. His enemies were hoping Nehemiah would quit the work on the wall, be frightened and start to defend himself. They'd get Nehemiah to lose the focus on what he was called to do, go to Ono and possibly be killed, or to quit out of frustration at the constant battles he was facing because the opposition was just too strong and too incessant. It'd be very easy to read this text about Nehemiah and to bemoan Nehemiah's enemies and say, and say, yeah, there's a warning for us here. But there's also something for us personally that we shouldn't become instruments ourselves in the hands of enemy. We must guard our tongues, conscious that our tongues have the power to bring blessing or curse on people, what we say, what we write, what we do. On Sunday evenings, every other week, we're going through the book of James. 
you want to be challenged about what comes out of your mouth, you know, you need to go and read the book of James. Does out of your mouth a fire set? Is a roaring blaze set in someone's life that can destroy or kill? Or does out of our mouth come blessing and on people's life that brings life? Are our tongues a place that brings confusion and chaos to people or leads people into life? As we share communion this morning, maybe one of each of our prayers is, Lord, this week, all the things that are disturbing my heart that lead me to say things that are critical, hard, or judgmental in our families, in our workplaces, Lord, help me, Lord, to find strength. In verse 9, Nehemiah's prayer, what does he say? Now strengthen my hands. Now strengthen my hands. Each of us face temptation on a weekly basis. But that prayer, Lord, strengthen my hands for my discipleship this week. Strengthen my hands to live for you this week. That I would bless, not curse. And then thirdly, after distraction and accusations, we see that actually a, there was a clandestine operation that was hatched to damage Nehemiah's reputation and tarnish his standing as a man of God. It involved Tobiah and Sambalat Harry, a prophet. You see it in verses 12 and verse 13, to deceive Nehemiah with a false message about hiding in the temple in verse 10 and 11. What that would do with this, if by hiding in the temple, it would discredit Nehemiah as a coward, and it discredit Nehemiah by showing that he was disobedient by going into the temple. And for those of us who live in the real world, who work with real people, who have different agendas to us, who have different perspectives to us, having spent 17 years working in the NHS prior to become a vicar, I can tell you that plotting and planning is still very real. how people want to spend the time getting what they want at the expense of other people. And actually, they put extraordinary amounts of effort into doing it. Not even subtle at times, but actually brazen. I remember starting my work in the NHS as someone who was, you know, idealistic and wanting to do good. Started the NHS, I was on a tra national training scheme. I went around some of the managers in different departments in the hospital I was working with. I sat down with one of the senior managers, the director of the hospital at the time. He said, Tim, you need to go and read Machiavelli. That's what you need to know. You need to go and read The Prince. You need to know how to play the game. You need to know how to do politics. You know how to need to manipulate things. You need to get to the end, and it doesn't matter how you get there. That's what it's about. I was a bit taken aback. But it was real. Actually, it was real. It was very real for all sorts of reasons. We're called to live in the world, not as people who live outside the world, cutting ourselves off from the world. We're called to live as people who are wise, full of the wisdom of God, recognizing there is deception in the world. Not being paranoid, not seeing deception around every corner, but actually recognizing that it's real and to be open, to pay attention to what's going in front of us and to be discerning and wise with each other.
and the world. I remember at one point um, in my life, I, I spent a lot of time in Matthew's gospel, and I would, I'd mull over those verses that Jesus sent his disciples out uh, with by saying he was called us to be like uh, wise as serpent and as innocent as doves. You know, innocent as doves, yeah, but wise as a serpent. It took me a long time and still takes me time to make the way through, the, to hold those two things together. Not to lose our integrity, not to lose what, what we're called to be, to be holy and set apart for God, but at the same time living fully in the world that we can see what's in front of us, we can learn to know how to deal with all that is part of us that is at times messed up and confused and not benevolent or good to us. And actually I've had to learn through many bad experiences in my work life, things that haven't gone well, things that haven't been people who sought my good, and actually to learn from it, learning how to deal with it and how to come back and find a place of restoration when things have gone really badly. I still remember one personal experience, I think it was about 19, this wasn't to do with work, it was actually to do with the church. I was been, I think, on mission somewhere in Europe, and I'd come back, and I was working out, I was really seeking God to say, well, God, what would you want me to do? And I can't remember how I got into a conversation, but I got a conversation with uh, a pastor in the city we were in, and this pastor said, Tim, I'd really like to bless you. I feel I'd love to pray for you and spend some time with you. So that sounds great. So actually, this person, I, I, my parents, I chatted to my parents, well, if you feel you'd want to do that, and he could maybe mentor you a bit, and I sat with this uh, other pastor, a 19-year-old, and spent an hour and a half where basically he sought to manipulate me and dominate me for an hour and a half as a 19-year-old. Wow. Not what I've chosen. And actually, I'm sat there, I'm sat there thinking, okay, there's some good things in the conversation, but also there was something deeply unsavory in the conversation. God can restore us. God can, and not just we go with more scars, but to that place where we grow trust again, even when people behave badly and we do harmful things to each other. Nehemiah recognized deception in what came here. He saw it for what it was, and he resisted the temptation to engage. And against all those leadership challenges, as we come to the end, we see finally the wall is completed. The people acknowledged with a reverence and a fear that God was with Nehemiah. That this wasn't just a human construct, this just wasn't a human thing, but God was with Nehemiah. God had helped them rebuild the wall against all the odds, against all the kind of things that came against, against all rational explanation. And the people were ready to celebrate and to give thanks. Leadership is a privilege and it's a joy, but it also is incredibly costly. And many of you know that. You've led in all sorts of different ways in the world as well, as well as in this church. But my prayer this morning as we come to the Lord's table afresh is very simply this. is Lord, as you come forward for communion this morning, would you pray, strengthen my hands for yourself? Would you pray, Lord, I need my hand strengthening 
for what I've been called to, whether that's for you in your home life or church life or work life, whatever it is, Lord, strengthen my hands that I would lead well this week. That's my prayer for myself, but it's also my prayer for us too. Lord, help me to resist temptation and distraction this week. I'll try not to get distracted too much by the, the cricket scores this week for me or whatever else it is that's your distraction. I won't get brought up into other accusations that lead me astray. I'll recognize when things aren't actually there to bless. Help us, Lord, to keep on track with you. Help us to keep focused on you. Help us to keep centered on you. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gifts and abilities that are sat in this room this morning. Many have decades of experience leading for you, loving the church, serving you, some maybe less. Father, I continue to pray, would you pour your life afresh into each one of us? Would you grow the gifts that you've placed in us and on us? That you'd grow us as a community that enable me, enable those on the PCC, every group the church is part of, to lead well. That we'd live like Nehemiah and live like you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.